she kind of was firing some shots at that specific use because it was like, wow, it's incredible, but it is a absolutely pointless thing that we are yeah. getting AI to do and yeah. it is spending or using up so many resources yeah. and it has a significant impact on the environment when we are using so much computing power. Yeah. And so I just kind of filed that back in my head. And yesterday for the MLOps community, we interviewed this guy, Josh. And halfway through his introduction, he was saying, yeah, and so, you know, we at this, uh, I think it was at OpenAI, he was working at OpenAI, and he said, and we were able to show that uh, AI can put together a Rubik's Cube. And instantly I thought, oh my God, That's you're the guy. <laughs> so my second question to Josh was, well, how do you feel about the environmental effects that this Rubik's Cube thing that you created? Yeah. And I realized after that, that basically <laughs> I was not making friends with Josh, asking him the second question after the introduce yourself yeah. was, so that whole Rubik's Cube that you think is a great success, actually it has a lot of environmental effects, but luckily he was a great guy. He took it in stride and he was saying, yeah, this is one of those moments where it's a great victory because it shows what machine learning is capable of. And that's really what machine learning research should be for. But it's also, we need to keep these greater points in mind that Sasha points out, like, do we really need to be solving Rubik's cubes? Isn't there something more important that we could be solving? And shouldn't we be conscientious of the environmental effects when we are using infinite compute and infinite data? Yeah. So there's, there's two, two analogies I would, I would offer on this. Um, one analogy is like, you know, everyone's experienced this in the last year, you get a knock on the door it's the Amazon delivery um, and you get this big box and you break the seal of the box and it's full of the plastic, you know, bubble packaging and you kind of rip all that open and then inside there's, a, there's another box uh, and you, you take it out and then you've got all the kind of vacuum plastic container and then finally there's this little thing, the thing that you ordered and it's like you look at the packaging and you see this little thing um, and, um, and that's AI. That's a perfect metaphor for AI. Um, the thing that we're doing with AI quite often is, you know, very, very trivial in terms of the impact that it's going to have, the, the improvement, the incremental improvement it's going to have. And if you look at the input costs that go into that, it's quite astounding. Um, not in all cases. And of course, you know, you've got to maybe prove uh, a model works. You've got to prove that um, something is possible. And then you can think about how to optimize it and how to make it more efficient. But this is definitely AI's dark and dirty secret. Mm -hmm. And the, another, the other analogy, the way I tend to think about this is it's like, you know, imagine kind of, you know, certainly back in my, my years, I'm, in, you know, my, I'm nearly 40. And so when I had my first car, you know, um, I, I was 16, I, so it was before I was legally allowed to drive, and I used to take great pleasure in sitting in my car with the engine on, on the driveway, revving it, <laughs> turning the steel, pretending I was driving. And, <laughs> you know, I think about that now, and I think, oh, my God, like, 
was just burning. I mean, one thing like gas uh, was cheaper in the late nineties, a heck of a lot cheaper than it is now. So it was, it was not the, you know, the financial cost of me doing that was, was most different. Like now I, with petrol prices as high as they are, there's no way I would dream about doing that. Um, But that's again, kind of what the AI ML industry is doing. You've got a lot of really clever people who've got toys, you know, they've got access, as you say, infinite computer, significant amount of GPU uh, acceleration uh, that they use to do the models. And they, they spend a lot of time, a lot of brain power, um, just burning electricity uh, mm. for increment, hopefully, you know, improvements, but quite often it's not an improvement. And I think we, we really urgently need to start to have this conversation and not in a way of kind of shaming the ML community into being more responsible and more sustainable. Um, and also not to let them off the hook when, you know, from some of the firms say, yeah, but our data centers are wind powered or hydro powered or solar powered. You know, that's, that, that is not, uh, you know, if your, if your data centers are carbon neutral, uh, that doesn't get you off the hook. Mm. Um, there's still a lot of other, um, you know, it's better. Sure. It's a heck of a lot better than having your DC powered by a coal, uh, station and you know your location strategy where you put your data centers where you do your compute matters um but it's not you know that's that's the same as you know driving a tesla you know doesn't pollute the air around for the people that are breathing it in but it does have environmental impact we can't pretend that it doesn't and so um you know there's there, there needs to be much more thought put into um optimization and efficiency and um, and for me, that, that journey started, you know, quite a few years ago when I was at Fidelity. Um, you know, I was very aware of the environmental impact of um, of machine learning and and the energy cost. I I had joined Fidelity from a startup that that looked at energy efficiency uh, and optimization of computes. And so, how do we how do we essentially uh, do a task and make it more um, energy efficient. And there's lots of reasons why that's important. You know, if you've got a mobile device, the battery, if you make your code more efficient, the battery lasts longer. I mean, that's one massive benefit, but also you know, we're all sitting here on zoom calls. You know, if a zoom call is, um, if your computer is burning the same amount of energy as a, as a strong light bulb, just keeping zoom working, uh, and you know, the, the, the blurred background you've got behind you, I mean, that's, you know, machine learning, uh, is is trying to work out you know which bit of you is you and which bit of you is the background and you know this is consuming electricity. If that's badly engineered, if that code is badly written, multiplied by you know the millions of people that are sitting on Zoom calls every day, that's a significant impact on the environment. And um, yes, it might not be as great an impact as um, cars or planes or eating meat or other things on the environment, but these things add up. And um, what's happening today? is very much that this question of the environmental impact of AI is, is, is seen as somebody else's problem, or it's seen as a future problem. Um, and a lot of engineers are just not looking at this. And I think a lot of the reason they're not looking at this is because they don't get the nudge. They don't get told when you're hmm. training a model, this is how much CO2 is being produced. And it was really great to hear what Sasha has done. And um, I think it's yeah, in like, partnership with Boston Consulting Group. They've built this carbon mm-hmm. monitor for AI systems. I think um, that's a huge thing. The carbon carbon monitor and her idea of hopefully in the future, we start seeing companies put on their website how much carbon was used or how basically being more transparent about how how big their environmental effect is. Well, we can go one better than that. 
<laughs> What's that? We can go on better than that. So, so for people who don't know Ethics Grade, we um, are an ESG ratings business. So um, we essentially, you know, the same way that a company has, you know, financial reports, then companies, public companies have to report on that publicly on a quarterly basis uh, and an annual basis. All companies, even you know, my little tiny company has to report on an annual basis. Um, you know, we thankfully now finally have recognized in the 21st century that um, financial uh, performance is not the only measure of success. And um, our impact on the environment, our impact on society um, are, are also critical things which the world needs to know about. And so when you buy a product from, you know, one company or another company, um, you might be attracted by which is the cheapest product, which is the most you know, nicely packaged product, which one looks the best, the features, um, lots of things. But you also might be interested in the the impact in the world that that company has. And increasingly, that this is becoming a, a concern for consumers and increasingly this is becoming a concern for investors. Um, and we've started to see really high-profile examples of organizations that have got this wrong and they've really turned off their investor community. And, and the recent one, I, I've forgotten the name of it, it's a photo sharing app like uh what's it called dupo or something like this it's um it's going to come to me um uh the um there was you know the, the app is great and it's done really well in the app store and it's you know they've just raised a 20 million uh dollar season uh, series a um and um there's suddenly the ceo and the senior leadership team have been embroiled in um uh, sexual harassment um, allegations um, and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. And, you know, this is a governance problem. This is a really big governance issue for this organization. And what's happened is the investment has evaporated. The investors have pulled out. The app is tanking. Consumers are, uh, people aren't downloading it. So Dispo, Dispo is the name of the app. Um, and we're seeing lots of examples of this um, in fashion, in food, in, uh, you know, biotech is obviously uh, going to be a, a, a key industry where reputations uh, need to be protected. Mm. And, you know, tech obviously is, is, is the one um, that I'm uh, very much having focus. And so the question is, like, what is the impact on the world of, of these organizations? And there's lots of, there's lots of questions around this. Um, and so... Um, going into Q2, uh, we're looking at about, and, about 160 different aspects of an organization's non-financial performance. Um, and some of those touch environmental uh, concerns, some of them touch uh, social impact concerns, some of them are, are governance-centric. Um, and, um, and, and, and going into Q2, we, we've added quite a lot more around sustainability, uh, both in terms of products um, so how circular is the life cycle of a product? You know, has an organization designed its product so it's not repairable or not recyclable? Um, you know, do they, do they have a business model that, that kind of you know, has a, a planned obsolescence built into it? Um, and also to what extent are they giving engineers nudges when they're designing uh, machine learning um, uh, algorithms uh, uh, to, to pick more energy uh, efficient versions of, of that and also to move compute to uh, l low carbon um, uh, centers. Um, and so um, what we're able to do today is we're able to pick up on, uh, we're able to pick up on two things. Firstly, what's available in the public domain? Um, and the answer is there's not enough. Um, and that's why we also have a survey. 
So we contact every company that we rate, we give them an opportunity to put us right, and we ask them for information. And, you know, um, I think it's fair to say that those companies which have the most responsible attitude towards the world are the ones that respond. And it's great to see that. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we strongly encourage an organization that if it is monitoring its carbon uh, footprint of its um, ML systems to tell us that so that we can score yes. them appropriately. And um, on our website, ethicsgrade.io, um, as we're speaking, about 40% uh, of the companies that we've rated are uh, publicly available. By the time this episode goes out, it will probably be nearly all of the companies we've rated. So we've rated about 200 companies, 200 of the biggest companies so far. Um, and what you can do is you can download a scorecard. You can see uh, you can see the scores for each of these organizations based on the five categories that we look at in Q1. Um, and in Q2, we're adding a sixth category, which is uh, sustainability. Um, and that's specifically looking at those two things, the life cycle of a product um, and um, the, uh, the, the, the optimization of the code. You know, to what extent is the code being written in an efficient way so it doesn't burn? And so, yeah, if an organization is playing with Rubik's Cubes, don't get me wrong, it's clever. It's really clever. But, um, you know, if it's doing kind of toy innovation projects like that to prove that something is possible, um, it should really think twice. Hmm. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, you know, that's one of the things we rate. And our goal ultimately is, is to do exactly what you've just said. Um, if we can get, you know, via API call, we can plug directly into the MLOps platform that that firm is, is running. Um, then, you know, we think that firms should be reporting on their um, carbon footprint of their AI systems just in the same way that they might be reporting on the carbon footprint of their factories or their offices. And this might sound, this last point here, this might sound far-fetched. This might sound like it's kind of crazy talk, but it's not long ago that when you bought a, a car, there was no way of easily understanding the CO2 output of that vehicle, how, pollution, how pollutive it was. I mean, miles per gallon was something that people cared about um, because at the end of the day, that hit the user in, mm -hmm. in, in their wallet. The, the person who bought the car needed to know how many miles per gallon it was going to, how expensive was it going to be to run. But CO2 um, was not something that was reported on. And now, you know, it, it, it's mandatory. So many things... Um, the energy efficiency of those things is now uh, legally required. You buy a television or a fridge, it's legally required. And we're moving into the world now where we're going to start to see corporations being forced to report on the carbon efficiency of their offices on a per-person basis. Um, and this is going to drive huge innovation to make sure companies are more uh, carbon neutral. And by extension of that, we're going to start to see companies being forced to do the same around their technology estates, their cloud environments. Um, and we're the first to market. We're the first company in the world who's looking at this and providing that data back to investors. Well, there's an interesting ethical question there when you talk about these companies that are doing this research and we will single out OpenAI and the Rubik's Cube fund that they had. And the idea there is that, yes, you need to continue with research. You need to show what is possible with machine learning. So how can you do that in a responsible and sustainable way? Yeah. 
And that brings me to, to Sharon, because I think Sharon was another interview that you had where I was listening and kind of wanting to jump in. <laughs> and that's probably does mean good, actually, listening to this as a podcast where I'm not, yeah. This is one of the reasons, <laughs> D, why I didn't want to be You weren't involved. Because um, I knew I would just jump in. And, and um, uh, so Sharon, Sharon, I think, really intuitively has picked up on something which we've been thinking for a long time. Uh, and full disclosure, I, I, full disclosure I, I've, I've, I've met Sharon, I've spoken to him, but we've not actually spoken about this exact thing. Um, so it was really interesting to hear about his uh, project, um, uh, Citizen Intelligence, I think mm -hmm. it's called. Uh, and um, but basically what he's, what he's saying is that the best people in the world to decide whether AI is ethical or not are the people in the world and we should be asking those people whether they think that you know this is the right thing to do or that's the right thing to do mm -hmm. and um you know and he's developed a, a a community to do exactly that a crowdsource community to do exactly that and i think that's 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 great and and essentially what we're doing or part of what we're doing is is very very similar very, very aligned to this and this comes back to some research that i did a few years ago around the tech clash and why we have a tech clash um and this has been a question i've pondered for years. I've, I've had a uh, concern about technology. I've had a, like this kind of gut feeling that maybe the tech industry is crossing creepy lines without realizing, maybe in some cases quite intentionally doing so. Um, but um, uh, I think the tech lash, this kind of, um, you know, the media turning against tech, um, I don't agree with Callum on that, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Murdoch and Murdoch's cronies for, you know, suck and, yeah. and go. Um, but I think, I think Callum, Callum is is um, is spot on though in terms of a lot of the things that the tech industry is criticised for actually started uh, in, in, by the you know was started by the press, but started by the media and particularly Murdoch um, and, and his um, organisations. But so I'm leaving that aside. I think um, this uh, this essence of the tech clash um, is fascinating because just in 2011, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was Time Person of the Year, and then you know six seven years later, he was sitting in front of Congress getting grilled. Uh, public enemy number one. Um, and um, what the tech industry have done, by and large, is two things. Um, and this is why I think, this is why Dan Jeffries and I would disagree, I think, uh, if we were to have this conversation together. I mean, Dan basically says, you hire a bunch of really smart people to figure out the engineering and to make sure that the engineering doesn't go wrong. You build a red team and you make sure that you think about all of the unintended mm. consequences. I, I agree with that. Like, Dan is spot on. He then says you should then go hire a bunch of PR folk <laughs> to spin the story and to clear up the damage when stuff does go wrong, mm -hmm. stuff will go wrong. And yes, that's part of it. You always want to be communicating and, always, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying that PR is not a useful tool, but I think the tech industry has made this big mistake where it sees actually PR as being the only tool to kind of um, sway public opinion. Um, and if you look at, you know, our criticism of Microsoft, I Microsoft's a fantastic company. And, you know, we score and we rate Microsoft very highly on our, on our, um, on our uh, ratings. In fact, they're the only cloud company to get a, an A grade mm. in Q1 uh, 2021. Um, and I think that's a testament to, you know, post the dark days of Steve Ballmer, <laughs> um, you know, who was like, you know, like mm. mad, <laughs> mad leader of Microsoft. And Microsoft has, has matured and become a, a really outstanding corporate citizen, I think. And, you know, as a great example to the rest of the tech industry and how to look at these things. But one of the things that Microsoft doesn't do, 
um, and, and we're critical of Microsoft before this, is that they don't really publish a lot of the detail behind um, how they make their ethical choices and how they, how, what the governance looks like around that. What they do instead is they, they've got this wonderful book, you can buy it on Amazon, that's the future computed and it's very glossy and it tells about, you know, how AI is going to be wonderful for the future and it talks about Microsoft's principles. We see a lot of that. A lot of companies are just doing this kind of marketing exercise of virtue signaling. And the equivalent of that, if we translate what we look at to climate change, the equivalent of that is like 20 years ago, you know, sending out a bunch of exec execs to Africa and giving a check to a village of orphans and putting that picture you know, prominently on the corporate yeah. brochure. Um, that's kind of what we're doing with AI principles today. And companies are falling over themselves. Samsung was one of the latest companies earlier this year to publish their principles of, of AI. I mean, it, there's no value in this whatsoever. Um, and um, I think one of the reasons that we have a tech clash is that, um, you know, journalists see through this, consumers see through this, and they don't really have the substance. And, they, and more importantly, they don't have the channel um, to be listened to. They don't have that feedback loop. Stakeholder engagement is, is non-existent or weak. And so I think instinctively Sharon is onto something with this. Um, and it's one of the things that we rate companies highly on is um, I say highly on is it's 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 turned up the dial is turned up quite strongly on these on these questions. So anyone from a tech company listening to this should take note. Um, we think best practice is where you um, don't just have a bunch of experts telling consumers um, that um, you've got their back and it's all good and you've engineered the heck out of the technology and it's not going to go wrong. We think best practice is where you've got a bunch of people listening and act actively soliciting feedback from consumers, not a focus group, not just like a whole bunch of people in suburban Seattle, but you know, a cross-section of society. You're actively asking them, how do they feel towards what you're doing? And you're building that feedback into what you're doing. And if you do that in a really sustained and, um, and scaled way, we don't think there would be a tech clash. We think that people would feel so bought into the process of technology and how technology is being implemented, that um, people would come on the journey much more. And my last point on this, the, the excuse that the tech industry tends to use, and I remember a webinar I was on with Noah Feldman, who um, is a Stanford uh, law prof, um, and one of the key inputs into uh, Cheryl and Mark, uh, uh, their, their big drive around governance at Facebook. Um, and Noah Feldman basically said the problem with... The problem for Facebook is um, it's just too big. You know, there's there's two point whatever billion users, and we can't go and ask every user what they think. We have to kind of make the decision for them. And he uses a kind of boaty McBoatface example. He said, like when you know this, I can't remember which what this the, the full detail of the story, but basically the, there was like a crowdsource campaign to name a, a, a ship. Uh, I think it was. Um, uh, one of one of the UK's like flagship um, military vessels or research vessels, um, and they went out to the public and said, "What should we call the the ship?" And um, some clever person thought Boaty McBoatface would be a really fun name, and it got a whole bunch of attention on social media, and then everyone voted for this, and it was it was the number one choice. And of course, you know, it's such a ridiculous name. There's no way you could <laughs> you could name the boat after that. And it's a great, great example of where crowdsourced ideas are just not viable. And, and so Noah Feldman says, you know, we can't use crowdsourcing. We can't ask 
the two point whatever billion people that use our platform what they think because it's just unwieldy. We'll get stupid ideas, um, and therefore we need to make the decision for them. And I think mm -hmm. he's wrong. I think he's fundamentally wrong. It's not. It's not that you can't ask two point whatever billion people what they think. It's the fact that you you have a um, you have a, a a responsibility to do exactly that. And 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 the very fact that you've been so successful that you have two billion users shouldn't get you off the hook. In fact, I think it makes the necessity for you to devise a way of having a stakeholder feedback engagement process. And it makes that even more important. Um, and that's my kind of challenge to, to Facebook and Amazon and some of the big, really gigantic companies is, you know, um, you know they need to look at, at how exactly to do this. And there are answers. Um, there's quite a lot in the, um, there's Nesta in the UK. It's an it's a innovation, kind of an arm of um, a UK government agency that looks at innovation and science and how we innovate responsibly. They, um, they've done a lot around a, a, a uh, technical collective intelligence, which is essentially a kind of crowdsourcing, but um, crowdsourcing that, that aims for outcome as opposed to crowdsourcing that just mm. creates noise. And so there are answers out there. It's just these answers haven't yet been picked up by the tech community um, as strongly as they should be. And, and, and that's one of the things that we rate. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned there with Callum and his ideas on the tech community and their, because he, in my eyes, he kind of let them off the hook. And we can start there and then we can go a little bit deeper into his whole thoughts about how there's going to be no jobs for us. Uh, and what I have some ideas that have rolled around in my head since that conversation I want to bring up with you. But Let's start with what you thought of his his ideas around Facebook being persecuted because <laughs> there is one person in the world that owns all of the uh, the traditional media and doesn't like that now the new media is going to Facebook. Yeah. Um, so. Where do I start with that? I think um, I think I think I think Callum's spot on when he says that the problem originated uh, before big tech, um, and the, the the problem uh, the problem lies really uh, you know uh, where um, organisations that provide a public service, news organisations, um, broadcast organisations. Um, when they um, stopped being required to offer balanced arguments, um, that's really when things started to go wrong. And of course, you know, the, the rise of talk radio in the United States um, created the opportunity for, you know, small interest um, groups to basically build feedback loops and, you know, megaphones for those, those feedback loops were then built by the social media giants. And so I think the, the root cause of the problem is that we have to decide in terms of, um, you know, what is, uh, you know, what information is broadcast um, by, by media platforms. And, I, and Facebook is a media platform as much as it denies it is. Um, then we have to make sure that there's a, a level of balance provided in any view that's being put forward. And 
this is a difficult problem. There's a lot of people working on this. There's not any easy answers. But it doesn't, because it's a difficult problem, doesn't, doesn't get people off the hook. And, you know, when it comes, this, this question I think that keeps reoccurring in this podcast is, um, you know, should we intervene or will it slow down um, innovation? You know, we're 20 years on <laughs> from, from the newspaper industry being disrupted by the web. We're 20 years on and there's no regulation on this. And so this is not a question about, you know, or oh, maybe we should just like not intervene. I mean, like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, um, <laughs> you know, this is a non-argument. Anyone who says that, you know, regulatory intervention might slow down innovation. I mean, just they just need to look at what they need to kind of read some history back to, to uh, um, oh man, what was his name? Uh, to such a good guest. Um, uh, um Who's the guy that we had on, the, the historian, um, who was looking at Y2K? Um, mm, Zachary. Zachary. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was like one of my favorite episodes, and I forgot his name. Sorry, Zachary. Um, but he, he made a great point, you know, th that you just have to read a bit of history to kind of see where this has gone wrong in the past, and there's probably the answer. Um, so I think I think there's there's the root cause. You know, it's about balance on platforms. And then I think the second problem is that you know some of the big platforms like Facebook and others have have really gone out of the way to try and um, uh, to, to say you know, we we just make paper. You know, if, if you use the analogy that we're like a news, you know, we're not a newspaper. We're not. You know, we just the paper manufacturer. Other people write the news that's got, printed on our paper, and you wouldn't hold the paper manufacturers who account for a slanderous article in a newspaper. No, no, that's the editorial staff and the people who wrote the article. And, you know, that's, that's the infrastructure that's built on our platform. We just, we just make paper. I mean, that's such BS. It's absolute BS. Um, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a good metaphor uh, in, 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 in a way. Um, but what it, what it denies is there's a category difference between a newspaper and Facebook. Facebook has 2 point whatever billion users. There's never been a newspaper that's had such immense reach. And there's never been a newspaper empire, as much as people like Murdoch have tried, um, that that caters for, you know, both sides of of the arguments. Um, you know, you, you, there is there's never been a universal news organization, and so Facebook and you know these other platforms have a totally different level of responsibility, even to newspapers. Uh, they have a much greater responsibility, in, in some ways. And if that slows down innovation, then that is a very, very, very small price to pay. So I think I think Callum and I are on the same page around that. Um, I don't I don't agree with all of what Callum says. Um, and, and Callum is somebody I, I've I've got to know over the last five years, and um, I held him in you know great regard. I you know consider him a friend. Um, you know we're involved uh, in a in a foundation together, which is raising awareness for the potential negative impacts of of joblessness that might st come from automation. And that's something which, you know, he and I care deeply about. One of the really interesting things about that debate is a little bit like um, maybe the green lobby or maybe the kind of um, the, the Brexit, uh, uh, the, the kind of anti-Brexit lobby, is that while we're united on the issue, we're quite divided in terms of, you know, the cause of the issue and maybe the solutions for the issue. And I think it, it makes it a really difficult problem to channel, to marshal, is, you know, P Callum is faced with, you know, the, the foundation 
that we run um, and the the people in orbits around that foundation, you know, they come from the left and the right of the political spectrum. They have very different worldviews, and therefore it's very very hard to to kind of point to solutions that um, uh, that that are workable. And so Callum and I, you know, we have a lot of common grounds in terms of we we, we strongly believe and are worried about. Uh, some of the impacts of automation. We disagree about the timescale. We disagree about how it's going to happen. We disagree about the solutions. Um, um, and I think that makes it really interesting. But it's also the challenge, because I think the other side of that debate, that AI is not going to remove jobs, it's going to create jobs, that other side of the debate is much more united around that, that viewpoint and the vision that it, it sells. And I think that makes it a much more dangerous adversary, because they're united um, but they are wrong. <laughs> and that's our challenge. Mm, well, I am a little bit skeptical about this whole thing. I do understand that Callum mentioned, he said it's not that he can tell when it's going to happen. He just says that it will happen. And for me, I look at the kind of stuff that I see right now machine learning doing and doing horribly. And I also look at the problems that we're faced with that I feel like machine learning has created and AI has created. And I think to myself, we can't even get this right. How are we expecting to get something like a this grandiose idea of AI is going to take over everything and we aren't going to have any jobs anymore when really the small piece that AI is doing right now, it's failing at quite miserably in a lot of use cases. So yeah. I look at that and I think, mm, maybe it, I can see the argument that yes, it will happen, but I am very skeptical <laughs> if it's going to be in my lifetime even. So, so here's the thing. I mean, I did a TED Talk on, on, um, on this question, will robots take over? You jobs? love to keep reminding us about that TED Talk you did, don't you? <laughs> I do, uh, because it's going to do a much better job in 18 minutes of, of telling the story than, than I'm going to do now. It, um, I think um, the secret is, I mean, I, I don't believe it's going to happen in our lifetime. Uh, and I've said this to Callum, and you know, he, him, and I disagree on that. This fact, I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime. That's my best guess: is it's not going to happen in our lifetime. But equally, I'm very open-minded that I might be wrong, and I'm very open-minded because there's a lot of people out there um, in Silicon Valley and China and other places working their their, their guts out to make it happen faster than than that. There's a whole industry of people who are working on, on automating all different aspects of our lives. And so if they are right and I am wrong, then it's going to happen sooner. And it's not just the people that are working on this, it's the amount of capital that's flowing into this. I mean, it's, this is like, I love history of technology. This is like the 1840s when just an incredible amount of capital, um, you know, aristocratic capital, merchant wealth, flowed into building railways. Um, it was just this incredible bubble. And we're left with the consequences of that bubble today. There was no planning. There was no 
coordination. I mean, why is it that a small little town like Windsor on the outskirts of London has two train stations that are like kind of next door to each other, but not joined up? I mean, it's like nuts. You, you go into London, you see, it's just a complete mess. And the reason that London is such a mess is because it was a total free-for-all. And, um, you know, train lines are kind of hardwired into the landscape and cities are built around them. And London will always be this mess because it was no, there was no proper planning. There was no proper controls around this. And, and so I think there's a lesson here. There's a huge amount of capital flowing into automation. Um, and, 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 the, and the impact it's going to have is, 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 is going to be there for a long time. So I guess point, point one is there's a lot of people betting against me here. Um, and they're the very people that are saying, oh, but don't worry, don't worry, because um, we'll find new work. We'll, we'll, we'll invent this kind of magic work category. So let's take that part of the argument. And so I accept that they are right on the, on the long-term view, on the macro lens view. You know, if you, if you, take, if you take any issue over the, a long enough time frame, it becomes a non-issue. You know, you could say, well, you know, that meteor that hit that wiped out the, the, the dinosaurs, I mean, that was a pretty shitty day. <laughs> now, if we talk about climate change, I mean, that's pretty much up there in terms of, you know, cataclysmic climate change. But like on the long-term view, probably did us a favor. <laughs> we probably wouldn't exist. New York would probably be a very different city if it had to have a gigantic anti-dinosaur fence built around it. So if you take a long enough view on things, things, things are not an issue. And I, I'm of the view that, you know, yes, we might destroy our planet in the same way that we create a runaway greenhouse effect and we become like Venus and the air is like, you know, crazy and there's no form of life that can survive. But it's much more likely that we're going to, you know, wreck parts of the environment. Um, and we, uh, but the planet is perfectly inhabitable for other creatures or some species, and we will probably be smart enough to figure our way out of surviving. It just won't be as nice as the paradise we live in today or the paradise our ancestors lived in. Um, so I think, um, again, if you take a long enough view on things, things are probably not as bad as they seem. Um, and the, the problem here, again, coming back to history, in the 1800s, uh, when the Industrial Revolution was kicking in um, uh, and displacing huge amounts of work, um, if you take a long-term view on that, you know, isn't it amazing? The Industrial Revolution has created this wonderful, beautiful world that we live in today, the world of opportunity for, 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 for most people in, in the Western world. You know, we, we live um, fabulously wealthy and rich lives compared to our ancestors. Um, you know, unimaginable abundance compared to our ancestors. But if we go back five, six, seven generations, our, our same ancestors were living in abject poverty. London was a total shithole for half the population. You know, where Karl Marx was writing in Kentish Town in, you know, the 1840s, you know, he couldn't imagine how to lift this number of people out of poverty. He could only see evil and wrong in, in what he saw around him. So again, it, it's, about, it's about perspectives on, on time scales. And my worry about automation is that it might work out. They might be absolutely right. We might invent these new categories of jobs and our, our descendants, seven, eight, ten generations from now, may have this you know, utopian world. And, I, and I, I, hope that they, I hope they do and I hope they listen back to this podcast and think, well, what on earth are these guys worrying about? But the, my concern isn't for them. My concern is for you know, my kids and my grandkids and their friends and their peers and their 
contemporaries, because I think the world is going to be a pretty shitty place for a lot of people who lose their jobs through automation and aren't able to reskill in their lifetime. And that's the concern I have. The second point there, you know, is it going to, are we going to automate all jobs? Um, I, I'm, I'm with Callum on this. Yes, in the long term. Well, when I say long term, I mean like in a time frame that I can't comprehend. But I don't think it's really, that's really what the issue is about. I think the issue is about um, it's a much smaller section of, of society than that. I, I, I worry about a few thousand highly motivated, highly disenfranchised people. Um, and I, I worry about that dream of a full employment economy being broken and a, f- and a few thousand people realizing that in their lifetimes, they won't be able to reskill and retrain and find new sources of employment and therefore become dependent on handouts. And, um, and that's what concerns me. And it's that scale of the problem, um, you know, and, and incrementally bigger than that, that I think becomes an issue for societal unrest. I mean, we saw what happened on the Capitol uh, in January. You know, we saw what a few thousand or tens of thousands of people can do, what havoc they can cause. Um, we seem to still believe that we're immune to social unrest in the West, and, and we're really not. And, and that's my biggest, my, my biggest worry. And wh- will it come from truck drivers, or will it come from taxi drivers, or will it come from something I haven't thought about? Probably something I haven't thought about. Um, school teachers. Um, so that's, that's the issue, I think. And then the last point, oh, there's two more points. What, one more point and one solution. Um, will we create this magic category of new jobs? Um, and uh, the answer is always, well, we did it in the past, we'll do it again in the future. Yeah, yes, we, we can't, and, it, and it's impossible to predict what kind of new forms of, you know, virtual reality jobs I think Callum talks about. I think Callum, uh, Callum's right, we won't be able to predict the new jobs, but I think there's a really, really, really um, important distinction about what we're doing now with AI and the technologies of the past and that distinction is why the outcomes in the future are going to be different. And this is, I think, the most important point. In the past, we were building technology with superhuman capability. If you think about all of the breakthroughs of the Industrial Revolution in the 20th century, most of those things were about tools that had leverage. In, like, think of a hammer. A hammer can knock a nail into a wall in a way that you can't push it into a wall. It, 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 it's giving you leverage. It's amplifying your ability. It's superhuman capability. The airplane, the internet, Google, um, every technology you can think of in the 20th century, you can categorize it into superhuman capability. And so what we've learned is that if you give people superhuman technology, then we create new jobs. We create new possibilities for people. Um, over a long time, over a long enough time frame, the difference between that, everything in the past, and what we're doing in this community with machine learning, uh, with robotics, and with um, automation software, RPA, um, orchestration tools, APIs, um, and I, I lump those to get together deliberately to provoke a bit of a, a debate. Um, but that's probably for another conversation, <laughs> the link between APIs and RPA. Um, what all of those things are doing, they are human abilities. And if you think about robotics, like the Shadow Robotics in London, the company that makes the robotics hand that Jeff Bezos was, was playing with at one of the trade shows, 
Um, it, it is literally human dexterity that is being replicated in a machine. And, and so if you've done enough of those things, if you have replicated all of humans' physical ability in a machine, then what is left for a human to do with its body in terms of economic opportunity? I mean, logically, there is nothing left. And so, you know, the, one of the great uh, examples is the RoboCup. It's a, uh, it's a soccer team of robots. And I mean, if you look back like seven or eight years ago, it's so funny because these little machines are like utterly incapable. I mean, some of them kick each other because they get confused where the ball is. It's, it's, it's like, I mean, watching a bunch of children, watching, watching a bunch of three-year-olds play football is, is, is um, you know, they have better skills. But already, if you watch Boston uh, Dynamics, um, you know, the, what, what's possible, the cutting edge of, of robotics is, is already pretty amazing. And the, the, team, uh, the teams of people behind the RoboCup have the goal that by 2050, um, a team of robotic um, soccer players will be able to beat the World Cup winning human team of soccer players at a game of football. And that's totally doable uh you know 29 years away i i will i will put money on that being a victory for the robots and um and so this is the problem you know it's it's human abilities that are being replicated in machines and so what is left apart from a very very small slice of jobs and this is what i talk about in my ted talk is about things which require human touch and i think that's the debate we need to have and you know coming back to ethics grade what we're and this is the solution what we're saying to organizations like spotify you had sydney on this podcast talking about don't worry it's all gonna be fine we're just making jobs better the challenge we we give to companies that are automating um and don't get me wrong automation is a great thing it has a huge economic benefits and we we encourage people to do this, and, and I'm with Callum on this. We should proactively automate as fast as possible. It's a great thing to do. But at the same time, organizations who are involved in automation ought to be saying it's our responsibility um, to the people that we have to make sure that their skills grow um, as we are automating. And as we make redundancies, as we let people go, we need to make sure that they are given lifelong skills and we need to be working with our competitors in our industry to make sure that we as an industry are looking after the people in our industry and that they have an opportunity to transition into other work and yes that's going to slow down a little bit of innovation yes that's going to slow down a bit of automation but it's a heck of a lot better um, outcome um, doing that than doing what happened in you know i live in on the border with wales just 30 miles to my west um you know, coal mines were shut down with very little regard for the communities of, of people uh, who live there. And, you know, 30 years on the heck, it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, those communities are still living with, a, with the impact of that. And um, that's my concern with automation. And there's a way out of this. And a way out of it is just for firms like Spotify, um, you know, like uh, my former employers uh, who have big automation programs um, to uh, put a little bit of money aside to explore uh, the risks, um, the risks that automation might have social impact in a shorter time frame, and to use some of those funds to explore how we should solve for those risks. And, you know, although I'm not a fan of UBI, that's one of the options. There's many other options I'm sure we haven't thought about. But I think the people who ought to look at that are the people who are doing so you're, automation. you're saying that it needs to be the responsibility of the actual 
companies that are going to be cutting out these different jobs and they need effectively to create an R&D department that looks at how they can transfer or successfully move these people on? Yeah, not an R&D department. I don't think it's their responsibility to fix the problem, but I think what they should be doing is looking at it at an industry level and saying, you know, as an in, you know, in the same way, again, climate change is a great model for so many things here. You know, the oil and gas industry finally have um, committed some of their profits into looking at, um, you know, how the impacts of climate change can be mitigated. And, you know, some of that has gone into kind of R&D initiatives and, you know, and, and that's done, you know, yes, BP and Shell and, you know, they will have their own departments looking at clean energy and carbon extraction and other other things, but at the same time, they're investing at an industry level in think tanks and academic research and things which are in the collective good. And and, and really coming back to the ESG, that's what ESG is about. It's about it's about understanding your stakeholders. You know, the old sort of Milton Friedman days of um, your stakeholders as a as a capitalist, as a CEO of a corporation were your employee, uh, sorry, your, your shareholders. Um, your only duty uh, for social impact was to make sure that you create shareholder value. Um, you know, that was the world of the 1970s, and this is the world of the 2020s. Now, our s- set of stakeholders is much greater, and they include employees, and they include non-employees. Um, and, and, um, and I think that's what, really what I'm saying here, is that if you're you know, if you're, let, let's take an example of a role. Let's take a accounts payables clerk. Um, he or she will be sitting there receiving paper invoices, typing in the details into an ERP platform, um, and then marking them for approval for somebody else to then push the pay button. And, you know, if, in a big enough company, there'll be tens of people doing that all day long. And, okay, we can offshore it to India, because the labor's cheaper there. Um, we can scan the invoices when they come in and send them out to people in India to type them in from one screen to another screen. And you know, that is exactly what happens today. And, and we can even decide to outsource it. We can say, well, actually, we don't need to employ those. We don't need to be specialists in how to manage those 10 people sitting out in India or in Mexico or Poland or wherever. We can, um, we can hire a company to do that for us as an outsourced service. And they have like 10,000 people in India, and they just become the world's best um, accounts payables data entry company in the world. I mean, that's that's kind of the world we've lived in over the last couple of years. But already, accounts payables data entry clerks don't have a future because um, all of that can be automated quite easily. And to Yoav's point, there are category of work that should be automated, and that is a category of work that absolutely should be automated. There's nothing about that. It doesn't make my invoice better that it was entered by a human, or it was pay- a human paid the invoice. It doesn't make you feel better when you receive the money in your bank at the end of the month. Um, all you care about is it was done efficiently without any mistakes. Great so, um, so that's definitely a category you want to automate. The question is, if all the accounts payables clerks in the world are replaced by, you know, um, Salesforce's accounts payables module, which they launched today, you know, within 12 months, there won't be a single one of those jobs left in existence. Now, thankfully, those types of workers can easily retrain into any other form of data entry clerk work. Um, but as you can probably see, if you've solved that problem, you've kind of solved all of the data entry clerk problems. So then what are those people then going to do? And that's what I'm really saying is I'm not saying that we should have a union of data entry clerk workers, but 
it's it's kind of like that. You know, if your firm uh, and you you're you're putting automation in place, and it you're the consequence of that is going to be it changes the nature of people's work. There's two things you should do. One, make sure that they have a path to other forms of 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 economic um, skills, and that that's a retraining uh, imperative. That is a responsibility you owe to your own people, um, uh, we believe. And then secondly, you should be talking with your peer group, your competitors, your industry, and say, hey, you know, this particular aspect of all of our collective um, environments is going to be something which we can see is going to be automated out of existence in the next five to 10 years. Collectively, as an industry, that means that two and a half thousand people that were formerly employed by our industry are not going to be employed by our industry anymore. And yes, they might go and do exactly the same work in another industry, but the likelihood is that that other industry is also going to automate mm-hmm. it. So how do we as an industry make sure that those two and a half thousand people have an economic future? And that's an industry problem. Um, and there's, you know, lots of stakeholders that should be involved in that. You know, probably, you know, political parties will probably have a view in that. Unions will probably have a view in that. Um, but there's other stakeholders, and not least of which the people themselves. And I think the, the danger right now in terms of where the needle is set and all these things are balanced. The needle right now is that firms like Spotify. I don't want to. I don't want to single out yeah, Sydney you are here, but picking she did, on them a little. <laughs> she did. She did. She did kind of say this on this podcast, so it's kind of fair game. Um, but some firms are saying, um, uh, you know, don't worry. You know, we're just making the nature of work better, and um, we're improving. You know, employee satisfaction. And yeah, if, like if we do make people redundant, there'll be this new work for them to come into. That's a very, very, very naive uh, perspective. And I think we, they, all of us need to be a little bit more responsible towards that. So let's talk before we finish up about Yoav's ideas. And as you mentioned, he met, he said, there are some things that should be automated and there are some things that shouldn't. And as you were talking about the robot football team, that is a perfect example in my mind of something that should not be taken over by robots because the whole drama of a football game is that you see people get tired and then they can't shoot as well and they get injured or there's this back and forth and you have someone that fails and falls over. Mm. on purpose or because they actually got pushed. And so that's like, that's the stage, that's the show. And that's what I love about it. And I think a lot of people love about football. All of a sudden you take out that human element and it's just robots playing at each other, which don't get tired and they don't have worse shots after 90 minutes than the first five minutes. And it's, it's a different game. And so... I don't think, in my mind, I would ever want to watch robots after the novelty wears off. I wouldn't want to watch robots playing each other. And that's just kind of a, a microcosm in this macrocosm of there are some things that that aren't going to go away. And I think you have put it really well on things that require humanity, like things that require a human touch aren't going to go away. Yeah. So... I mean, there's definitely going to be people who will say, well, actually, I might watch a robot football match. Um, and, you know, and, and maybe there's a greater p- bunch of people who, who do that in the same way that 
I never thought that people would sit and watch other people play video games on YouTube, and that's become a thing. Um, and doesn't seem doesn't seem like that's going to go away. And you know, I'm probably of a generation that won't understand that. So maybe there is a maybe there is a market for robot football teams playing each other. I mean, there's obviously a lot of as a market for kind of robot sort of robo wars of like you know people building robots to kind of destroy other robots in like a robot robo wrestling yeah. type environments. Um, and so who knows? I mean, I, and I, again, I, I always kind of try and keep an open mind with this stuff. You know, yes, there's going to be forms of entertainment that we can't imagine. Um, uh, and over a, long, uh, over a long enough period of time, I think maybe a lot of these things will fall away. Um, I think there is a novelty value in watching human team play a, a robot uh, team uh, because, you know, there's, there's no harm done uh, if they humans lose. Um, and, um, you know, it's another kind of tick in the box. And I think really what the robotic industry and AI industry is doing is it's just one small step at a time. We did chess in the 90s. We've done Go now. You know, other forms of sports and entertainment are going to be picked off. But let's, let's pick some stuff that we would definitely not do. Would you put a robotic boxer in the ring against the world champion? Um, Great I mean, point. That should be obvious. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've just watched the Rocky series. I, I, for my great shame, I've never seen a Rocky movie until about three weeks ago. Um, and um, it's, 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 it's brilliant on so many levels. Um, and what's great about it is it's like, it's, it's the same frigging plot, <laughs> like eight times, even the Creed movies are like the same plot. <laughs> but it's just, it has the right mix of gut-wrenching emotion and, you know, a bit of violence and it's, it's, it, it works. And so Sylvester Stone has done a really good job there. Of, uh, of, of, of building that formula. But I think one thing is clear. I mean, I, I never really appreciated how brutal boxing could be. Um, uh, I've never seen a boxing match in real life. I've never watched one on television. Um, and now I've watched, you know, eight movies about boxing. But that's, that's so really clear to me. You would not put a, a robot in the ring against a human. Why? Because the robot would just do so much damage, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the first blow. Um, and so... But two robots boxing together, yeah, I could, I could perhaps see that might, to some people, be of, of entertainment value. Um, but I think what, to your point about sport and to Callum's point about art, um, it's, it is the human element in some of these cases that does make it so compelling. Um, and so I think there's sort of two things. There's the engineering challenge of can we, can we do this thing? Um, and I know there's people like trying to build robotic sports cars to race around a racing track. Um, and one day they may even be faster than Formula One drivers. And I can believe that day will come. Will that replace sport? No, probably not, is my view. I think sport will remain to be a category of work for people and probably extraordinarily highly paid work for people. That's certainly the trend we've seen over the last century. Um, but will that make us all sports people? I, I don't think so. Um, and the same token, technology might enable more of us to be artistic, but will that make us all artists? I don't think so. And I think the, the problem, and this is more an economics point than a technology ethics point, the problem is really, um, you know, our, our economic system, you know, capitalism, as we call it, I mean, it, it ultimately it comes down to, as a group of people that own resources, um, capital, and you know, those resources are extracted and transformed via labor into goods which are consumed. You know, people get paid, people consume more, uh, money goes back to the capitalists. I mean, that's the capitalist system. Um, I, do, I do think this breaks down. I do think this paradigm breaks down if, if, if we reach a tipping point of automation. 
Um, and that paradigm breaks down because there's too much wealth will accrue to capital owners and not enough wealth will accrue to the rest of us. Um, and I think that's really the problem where it comes to work and art and sports is, you know, how do the rest of us find avenues to create wealth? Um, how do we create capital uh, wealth? Not, not income necessarily, but capital wealth. Um, and therefore, how do we have a, a society where people have um, social mobility? And, and I think, mm. to me, that's the, uh, that's the deal that you and I have grown up with. You know, we've, we've grown up in different countries. We've grown up, you know, with different, um, you know, economic uh, realities. Um, but we've also grown up largely with similar opportunities and, and similar opportunities to people like, you know, like Zuck. Um, you know, I don't at all begrudge him his wealth because, you know, he's worked hard, he's got lucky, and he had the kind of similar opportunities to the rest of us, and it could have been us. And I think the lottery of economic life that is a kind of, it's not a fair system, and obviously there's a lot of people in the world who don't have the opportunities that you and I had. We, we're definitely in the overprivileged bucket. Um, but I think for all of us, we the reason we can maybe accept inequality of wealth and inequality of outcomes is because we have similar opportunities. And I think that's the thing we've got to really optimize for um, uh, as we automate our economy is to make sure that opportunity accrues equally uh, across society. And maybe that way we avoid the social unrest. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because in not in all countries do we have this guaranteed or the known or just it's not a given that social mobility is a thing like when you look at I look at India and the caste systems and that is something that it's not guaranteed that you have social mobility and so I wonder about that and I think that's a huge point that you make is that's what we want we want to continue with that how can we make that a reality as we move forward uh, and the and think, last, yeah, go ahead on that. I think, I think on that, I mean, I, I, um, I, I've tried to be a student of, um, of, 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 uh, I, you know, it's clear that China's going to play a massive role in our future, um, whether we like it or not. And, um, I try to be a student of as much of Chinese, you know, history and culture as I can be, uh, over the last few years. Um, so, you know, at least I personally can be better prepared for that future and understand it more. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things about Chinese culture and Chinese history is actually I think they've done perhaps in many ways a better job of exactly that than we have in the West. Um, and it's not universally true. I mean, I think you can't have a conversation about equality in China without mentioning Xinjiang um, and, and the persecution of, of their Muslim population and um, the human rights allegations um, uh, that are perpetrated there. So. Um, it's not a perfect system, but I think for the for the Han people, for for the kind of the majority in China, um, you know, it, they have had a, a kind of a, a sort of a technocratic um, meritocracy for longer than we have in the West. Um, and by which I mean, you know, the path in the old, old days in China, the path to power and success was through essentially studying, um, you know, elements of governance and basically to, to be a civil servant was the kind of highest status in, in, in Chinese society. And it, it took a lot of hard work and study and intellect and ability, natural luck, uh, to kind of get there. 
Um, and, but that's deeply ingrained in their culture. And I think, you know, China today is very much that land. It's the American dream, as we once called it. Um, what, what, is, what doesn't exist in China is the ability for me to land on the, in the port of, uh, you know, Shenzhen or, or uh, you know, uh, Nanjing and, and suddenly make it as a successful business person. Uh, you know, that, that immigrant's dream that, that was America um, and is no longer true of America either, uh, largely, is um, is uh, is not something that that China enjoys. But one one thing it is true is that you can come from, you know, the paddy fields uh, and to the city, and with a high hope and a high likelihood of outcome that your kids will uh, have a much 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 better life than you had, and your 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 ancestors had. And I think in the West, that's that's the problem we're going to have in a century is going to be. China is going to enjoy that that privilege that we had in the 20th century. You know, our kids hopefully have a better life than we had, but it's not certain that that's going to be the case. And in China, that is very, very certain for most people. They their kids will have a better life, um, and I think that's one of the things we're going to have to wrestle with. Um, and technology is going to play a big role. And just one last point on this point: I, I hope we don't have to talk about robots and jobs again for a few episodes uh, for a few seasons, but. Um, Callum made a predict- you said you said where's it going to happen first? Is it going to happen in in America first or Europe first or where or you know is it going to be the emerging worlds the the global south that are going to struggle with this more um, or, or are they going to get it later? And Callum said it will happen in America first and then Europe and then India and then China. Uh, totally disagree with him on that. It's going to happen in China first. <laughs> um, and um, and it's probably going to impact somewhere like India more in a negative way. Um, and 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 as as for us in Europe and America, we might actually be somewhat immune to automation for the first wave or two. It might not actually impact us too much at all. But I think places like India will impact significantly. And the ev- there's a lot of evidence for this. China is investing massively in robotics, absolutely massively across all slices of society. Um, not least of which in agriculture. And I think you know, agriculture robotics is going to become a, a massive industry. And China is just in a totally different category to the United States or any other country I've seen in terms of its, its innovation in that regard. And what does that mean? It means, yeah, no farmers. They probably have a smaller emotional attachment to agriculture and farming than we do. You know, if I'd live next to a farm, if my neighbor got put out of work from robots, I think he would be pretty upset. <laughs> You'd probably stab the machine with a pitchfork. Um, uh, and so it's hard to advocate in, in the UK that farming should be automated. In China, not a problem at all. Um, and I think we're going to see, you know, China provide for their people, provide food for their people, um, uh, you know, free or cheap or close to free, much, much faster than anywhere else in the world. And one of the things that, that's driving this is China's actually struggling with a food shortage. Um, and so China has done a lot of campaigning, the political party of China has done a lot of campaigning recently about people. It was quite fashionable as people kind of came into new wealth over the last decade or two and having a level of decadence has been almost fashionable. Um, it's been quite common for people to have parties and to invite guests and have banquets and to kind of one way of demonstrating your wealth is to order more food than anyone could possibly reasonably uh, eat. And of course, all of that food is wasted and thrown away. 
Um, and you know what what China's realized very quickly is that that's not sustainable, and they don't they can't produce enough food to feed their population. And so what they're really clamping down on is wastage of food. And there's a whole campaign around food wastage, only basically buy what you can eat and don't let other people kind of waste food in this way. And it's, it's really, and because of a quite a autocratic system, people are conforming to that much, much faster than we would conform. <laughs> yeah, if, if that happened here, people would just have food parties and throw away food in spite of what the government is saying. I mean, it, you know, we have that mentality. They're conform. Um, and at the same time as that, trying to reduce the amount of food that people are consuming, they're also looking to automate food production as fast as they possibly can so they can really optimize their yield. And what's going to happen? Those two things, they're going to come together. Food will be automated. There'll be no farmers in China. The whole population will have free, abundant food, and the rest of us will be wondering where the heck did that come from? And um, I think we need to talk about that more not in this podcast, but in general society, because I think the utopian and the dystopian outcomes, and I mean them both together in parallel at the same time, the utopian outcomes and the dystopian outcomes that will come from technology will happen in China before they happen here. And, and our role in the UK, in Germany, in the United States, and other places is to look at China and to try to pick perhaps the menu of what outcomes we want. Fascinating stuff. Last thing before we go, I guess next time we chat, we will be able to talk more expertly or just more clearly around Yoav's thought of vaccine passports. That's something that hopefully in two months we will know better. You didn't just... You didn't just say that, like, just to trigger me, did you? <laughs> <laughs> just save it for the next time. That's all I got to say. Oh, I'm wondering. Man, you can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> okay. We've, okay. Gone, gonna, we've gone way gonna... too far over. I got my daughter here yelling at me. We're going for a walk. All right. So all right. next time we'll know what's going on and where we're going with this vaccine passport thing. And that's about it. I am going to sign off. Cliffhanger. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tune in for the next time. You, so. you know you know exactly like how to dangle this little kind of, oh, I know I can wind him up <laughs> by getting him to talk for five minutes on this thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him he's not going to have a chance to. And I'm going to be sitting here for months now stewing on this. So. Yeah, I'm thanks, sure thanks your argument <laughs> and your discourse is going to be fully formed and ready for a talk uh, next time we'll we we'll get see. together. And Bye, so I appreciate this, Charles, as always. Let's, uh, let's do it again soon. Let's do it again soon. Thanks. Have a good, have a good walk. Speak see you.